Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be here with you today. And for our American friends, happy 4th of July. Today's show is really special. The music in the background, it's from our good friend, Mr. Ryan O'Neill, also known as Sleeping at Last. You guys got to check out his stuff. He is so, so good. It felt really special today to bring on my friend Shannon Sedgwick Davis. She has a book out called To Stop a Warlord, My Story of Justice, Grace, and the Fight for Peace. That felt like a really good conversation for us to have on Independence Day. I will give you a little bit of a heads up. We talk about some more um, adult-themed things here because we're talking about war and we're talking about what goes on in other countries around uh, armies being built by kidnapping. And so if your kids are in the backseat or if they're across the kitchen and they love listening to their friend, Annie, today might be a day that you listen first before you listen with your kids. So just wanted to throw that out there. Shannon Sedgwick Davis is absolutely brilliant. She is one of my favorite voices in the justice space. She is the CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation, which is a philanthropic organization dedicated to stopping mass atrocities. And she's an award-winning advocate for social justice and international human rights. You are absolutely going to love her if you don't already. So here is my conversation with CEO, author, and just all around awesome, awesome woman, Shannon Sedgwick Davis. So one of the rules of the show is I only have guests on that are my friends. It's just like the rule. So um, when you were in town, I was like, please, can we get her over here? So thank you for making time. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me how last night at Parnassus was. Oh, it was so fun. And I got to tell you, the Nashville crowd is incredible. I really? Just, oh, it felt like more like a fireside chat. Oh. Uh, we It really did. It felt Hosted like we were all Miles. sitting around. Miles and Ruthie. And Ruthie, yeah. Which is so much fun. Right. Deeply respect them, but always super vulnerable when you're mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was a great crowd. It was an intimate crowd and just one where I think uh, everyone felt real, very safe asking tough questions about this work. Really? Which was such a... Oh, it was such a relief to just be in that environment. I have felt like I've had to be on so much with all the press that I'm doing yeah. and um, and that I'm talking at people instead of with people. And right. last night was a real gift because I was actually able to talk with people. And tell me, are you getting to do a lot of things in local bookstores? So very little. This was the only local bookstore, I believe, that we've done. Okay. So most of our events have been outside of uh, bookstores. And we've only done a few events, um, spending time on press and I just have two boys, and it's right. just too much. Right, <laughs> right. Just, so we're being and Parnassus is special, huh? It's really special. Yeah. I was really impressed. That entire area, that Green Hills area. Yeah. I, so I have family that live in Nashville, but I hadn't been in a while. And uh, then came uh, last month for Q. Yeah. And uh, and then again, and it has changed. So different. I mean, I remember when I couldn't really find like a hotel to stay at. Yes. And now there are like four new They're ones. everywhere. The yeah. one I stayed at last night has been open for like three weeks or something. Oh, which one is it? The Hilton in Green Hills. Yes, it's, it's so beautiful. nice, right? We could have oh carpooled, by the way. I live like next door to that. Oh Sorry, gosh, I just brought you beautiful. with me to work. And it was National Drink a Coke Day and they yeah. just kept trying to hand me a Coke every time I'd <laughs> oh walk gosh. in. And I was like, I got this, guys. Like, I can't have any everyone. Coke. I gotta be able to sleep. <laughs> I don't sleep anymore and my kids aren't here so I'm really gonna sleep tonight. No That's Coke. brilliant that you stayed right there since it's right by Parnassus. And I just love when she opened, Ann Patchett opened in the store, she literally just went, hey, we don't have a local bookstore. I'll just do it. It's amazing. An author opening a bookstore is such a gift yes, to our yeah. community. I would imagine with the work you do that interviews where you have to talk at people and where people are afraid to ask you what they really want to know is pretty frequent. Yeah. And okay. I, I can't stand it. Right. Because you know, this... um. 
God, the story was so sacred. And it's so, I was just, I, I got to bear witness to it. And yeah. there are times that I participated in it. And there are times that I absolutely didn't. And, yeah. and just really got to bear witness to it. And so um, this idea of sort of a mutual humanity, mm-hmm. um, I anyway, my, my hope would be that conversations uh, could go in that direction a little more, where we actually just really talk about these themes of humanity yeah. uh, that I discovered along this journey. There just doesn't feel like a lot of women in our space, and you can a thousand percent correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm probably going to ask questions that might borderline offensive to you, but I'm going to ask you everything I want to know. Girl, I'll tell you if you offend me. Okay, and we'll, we'll just edit <laughs> it out, totally or we won't. Fine. No, let's not edit it, girl. <laughs> are there other women in our in the faith space that are operating so closely in this kind of justice. You know, like I think about um, Invisible Children. It was all dudes, just about, that were the faces yes. of it. I mean, I know there's Liz doing Seiko. There's those kind of companies. Are there other women doing justice like this? You know, I would say um, we've got some great, there's some great female uh, leaders that um, are at International Justice Mission. Oh, yeah, I love IJM. Uh, so I'd say they've got uh, quite a few leaders there doing that kind of work, uh, doing the work of justice. Mm-hmm internationally. Um, I would say in general, the philanthropic space, which is actually the angle at which we're coming about this, right? IJM's a nonprofit. We're actually philanthropists. That space is really void of them. Uh It's a real disappointment. I'm trying to think back to when I first talked to you for one of Jeremy Cowart's pieces, like maybe 2010 or 11. Yes. And I remember thinking, I think Shannon's the only one doing this. Mm. I don't know any other women that that are at least vocal in a way that I go like, oh, you're like worldwide known for being a, the tip mm. of the spear, justice wise. Mm. How did you decide to do this with your life? I think if you're really true to the things that make your heart beat fast, the things that um, that bring you discomfort, uh-huh. but also bring you joy, if you really listen to that spirit, which I was really encouraged to do by my parents growing up, I think your work chooses you. You don't choose mm. your work. And for me, it was always issues of justice. I mean, they always made my heart beat a bit faster. And that manifests itself in different ways. When I was a young girl, mom said that I would bring home just every stray animal we could find in the neighborhood, you know, and high school would bring home stray children. Kids would get kicked out of their houses, you know, and then I went to law school because everyone said, gosh, Shannon, you should go to law school, which is probably not a compliment. (laughs) And it probably means I was quite argumentative. Uh, no, so went to law school and uh, and then read Gary Hogan's book and went and joined him in the early, early days at International Justice Mission. I'm telling you, I got to learn from some of the best yes. in this regard. And um, what a gift that was to, to see that not only uh, did we have to be able to articulate when things were wrong in the world and... Um, and unjust. And not only do we have to like stand on our desks and complain about it and make sure that we we were marching outside of Congress people's offices, but the idea that actually, you know what, we get to be a part and can choose to participate in ending that. Yes. And uh, man, no, thank God for Gary Hagen because uh, that really just that really helped me and really informed the way that I thought about the philanthropy Mm -hmm. uh, that we do in our current work and in my role as CEO of Bridgeway Foundation. Yeah. There is a scripture that I've like long wrestled with that I would love for you to 
sort out for me. Mm. At one point, Jesus says to two disciples, it's after the, um, I think, we'll, I'll, we'll tag it correctly in the show notes, but I think it's after the woman pours oil on his head and feet. And he says, the poor will always be with you, mm. but I won't. And I've always wrestled with that because so many of us do do justice work for the poor. Us, I put my, I don't, but so many of my friends of do justice work for the poor. How do you mesh that together with Jesus going, they're always going to be with us? That's a really good question. I, I will tell you this. I believe when we talk about justice, a lot of people think that I'm talking about, oh, there's human trafficking going on or there's children being kidnapped and that is an injustice and we need to go right that wrong. And just to be very clear, justice is so much broader to me. Mm. If we are all one shared humanity, right, uh, daughters and sons of Christ and of a loving God, then there's no hierarchy. No, mm. no one's in a, a higher position than the next. Uh, no one should be in a more vulnerable position than the next. And if the world worked, I believe, as it should, those issues of injustice uh, would be gone and wouldn't be present. And so this idea that the poor is always with us, um, I'm not sure that in some ways we aren't all the poor. Oh, right? oh that's it. Shannon, that's Mother it. Mother Teresa would tell you that was it. I yes. mean, that's what she would say. That is exactly it. We're that is what all yes. Yes. We're all poor. We are. Yeah. Oh man, that fixes so much in my brain. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting with a nonprofit leader and them saying, We're gonna eradicate poverty. And I went, I, I don't know how we do that when Jesus said the poor will always be with you. I don't think we can use that tagline. That's right. But you're right. We're it is all of us. We can eradicate poverty. We are all poor. That's right. Shannon. Well, that'll just we're done here, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Four minutes with Shannon Sedgwick Davis. Everybody knows everything. Wow, that's really beautiful. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. Okay, your book is called To Stop a Warlord. You have been working in this industry, industry, philanthropy, this world for decades. Why was it time to write a book? Oh, gosh. Because I would have wanted one from you years oh, ago. Oh, and I never wanted to write a book. Oh, that was so painful. That process was so painful. Really? So it took us about five years. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. You just hated it. Oh, every minute. Every and it's minute. such a long, I mean, you really like every put your heart and soul minute. into it. Oh, every minute of it. Um, so, of course, never thought we'd write a book. Honestly, never thought we'd tell the story. So we entered into this agreement to do this work under the strictest of confidentiality. Yes. And um, our, our intervention became known uh, through some individuals who spoke about it that were out in the field yeah, uh, and in the Ford bases where we worked. And so we ultimately um, had a piece done and the New Yorker uh, that, that sort of announced this intervention that we were engaged with that's right. described in the book. And uh, then, you know, we just really had to wrestle with, gosh, do we go ahead and just tell the comprehensive story? Because, yeah. you know, a few thousand words won't do uh, credit to it. And um, we went back and forth, but ultimately there are some of the most extraordinary human beings that walk the earth that I have been privy to meet and to Mm -hmm. learn from and to watch them give over and over. And they've made me better in every aspect of my life. And it ultimately felt like even though the story was almost too sacred for paper, that it was too sacred not to tell mm. and that I wanted to share them with everyone. So, Man, isn't that the best place to put a book? It's too sacred for paper, but too sacred not to tell. That is 
you want a book to be in that space, in that liminal space, in that what all the cool contemporaries are saying. Because yes. um, I remember when we talked about this a few years ago about the work, there were multiple times you said, I can't tell you that. I right. can't tell you that. I can't tell yeah. you that. And now like, I just oh, told you it all. Shannon's so much cooler than me. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, she can't even tell me the works he's doing. But the a big center part of your work is Joseph Coney. Yeah. In fact, we thought that that was largely the centerpiece, right? So essentially, we um, our foundation uh, operates off of 50% of profits from a money management mutual funds company. And we just have this mission, real simple, right? To stop mass atrocity. Right. Genocide. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And so we were funding into multiple mass atrocities and funding hundreds of grants at mm-hmm. one point a year um, to do this work. And we weren't doing the work of stopping the mass atrocity. We were doing a lot of the work of finding the advocacy beforehand sure. or coming in on the back end and trying to pick up pieces. And so ultimately, we decided we were going to try and see if there was a way for us to actually directly intervene more so mm-hmm. in an actual mass atrocity. And the LRA felt like the right atrocity, right? It's a non-state actor. Coney, you know, was not a head of state. He was operating um, across multiple countries. and In uh, Africa. In Africa. And in Central me and East LRA Africa. So for. LRA is the Lord's Resistance Army, right. which was the group that he, <laughs> awful. he founded awful. And, um, and because he... Um, because he was a non-state actor and because the Ugandan military, he's a, he's a Ugandan, mm-hmm. he's from northern Uganda, the Ugandan military had the authority to pursue him. There was a little bit of space to perhaps partner with or sort of plus an effort that might be going on in that regard. So we chose to try to intervene in this case and at least test it, test whether we needed to change our mission statement mm-hmm. or whether mm-hmm. we might be able to be engaged in the work that our mission statement said. And... In doing so, um, that's when we had to really wrestle with what does that look like? So does it look like an end to Coney, basically pulling Coney off the battlefield, who was the first ever indictee of the International Criminal Court, right? Like, Really? Oh, just global consensus about Coney being he's a, a bad monster. guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's also another reason to pick that atrocity, because you do have atrocities where there is really true conflict. And, you right. know, it's it's 5149, like, on any given day of, of who the aggressor is. This was not the case right. here. So initially we set out and we thought, gosh, if we can just have Coney apprehended and brought to the International Criminal Court, which has no arresting mechanism. So they can indict all day long, but they have no arresting mechanism. And can you tell us real quick, what kind of, for people who are just catching up to the story, yeah. what kind of things was Coney doing that made him such a monster? Yeah, so. Um, just everything. So I tell the story of. Um, a great friend of mine named David, who's done a lot of this work with us throughout the book. So David's chapters are kind of woven uh-huh. throughout the book. And I'll just, I will tell you the kind of things that Coney was doing by telling you David's story. So at age 16, the LRA came into his village, kidnapped him and his brothers. He was there with his mom and his dad. And they had the rest of the villagers, obviously, there. And uh, they put a gun to David and they said, who do you love the most, your mother or your father? David said, oh, you know, um, I love them both the same. I could never answer that question. And I shoved a gun at him and said, answer the question. Who do you love the most, your mother or your father? And David said, his father. And then they shot his father and killed him right in front of him. They then took David and his brothers. They separated them into multiple groups and abducted them into the LRA, where they were forced to do unimaginable things as children. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the girls are brought in as, as sex slaves. And David endured that horror uh, for only six months because he chose to try to escape. He escaped with a friend of his who didn't make it, who was killed in the escape. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but David did make it out. And David's dedicated almost every minute of his life since to trying to get as many of his brothers and sisters back out of the LRA as possible. But that's the kind of terror that Coney was in the business of. Horrific terror. He would cut lips, eyes, and tips of noses off of people um, if he felt like there was a community that had spoken um, about him or talked about something. I mean, we're talking about if you sort of sat back and said, where's the bar for evil in the world? I would have said Coney mm-hmm. and the and the LRA. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was just, it was happening in this place where they were preying on the bottom of the human development index, right. right? The poorest of the poor. Right. So it was just going on with impunity. Mm-hmm. How did he get into power? How, how does one person do that? I mean, I know we study like Hitler and right. go like, it was this little step and this little step and this little step and suddenly concentration camps. Not suddenly, but you know what I mean? Like you blink and there's concentration camps. No, How does Coney even do this? You know, they they tell stories about him having been an altar boy in the Catholic church growing up. Um, Is he like, how old is he? He is probably 57, 58. Okay. Yeah, late 50s. No one knows for sure. Yeah. Um, And basically, you know, there came a point where there was probably a legitimate political dispute between northern Ugandans and Acholis in particular, mm-hmm. which Kony is an Acholi, and David's an Acholi, and the majority of those that have been affected by this crisis have been Acholi, um, in which the Acholis felt very persecuted by the Ugandan government and Museveni and his government. Museveni was the president of Uganda. And so initially it was an idea, oh, let's rise up and let's resist. And... It didn't stay that way for very long. Very quickly, t- Coney turned on his own people. So he actually started killing Acholis. Okay. And kidnapping and raping Acholis. And uh, that's what he built his army with. And so they ended up being pushed by the Ugandan army out of Uganda many years ago now. Um, but then operated over this vast territory, about 90,000 square kilometers. Oh gosh. Yeah, that covered you know, parts of Democratic Republic of Congo, parts of Central Africa Republic, and even parts of South Sudan. Wow. Okay, so then you guys are stepping in. Yeah, no, we we had just gotten to know so many people engaged in this. We met so many heroic people. Through um, IJM. So many Davids. Yeah. No, no, this is just through Bridgeway. Just through, through Bridgeway, Yeah, okay. the organization that I knew. And so um, as we had been funding in this space, we we really did get to know um, a lot of these incredibly important uh, thought leaders in this space and uh, spent a lot of time on the ground just listening and saying, gosh, if we were to bring some extra resources in our philanthropic capacity, where are the gaps? Mm-hmm. Like, what could we fund? How could we help? And because we had spent already so much time on the ground and had relationships with these individuals, I think we were trusted and they shared with us their thoughts. 
And by the way, they all have their own solutions. It's real, really funny yeah. that we it's sort of with our mazungu is what they call yeah. me in Africa, yeah. our white faces. You know, think we could just bounce in on any given day and we've got all the answers. Um, it, it's not like that at all. My goodness. It's, it's actually about being in relationship, sort of this shared humanity idea and being in deep relationship where there's trust. And then, um, and sort of being almost invited uh, to participate, and that's what happened in this particular instance. So we, um, Coney was thriving, and the LRA were thriving because they could attack a village, and then they could go twenty more kilometers and attack the next village, and there'd be no warning mechanism because mm. there were no cell phone towers, there were no communications or radio towers. So in that particular instance, um, there was this incredible man named Father Abe Benoit, mm-hmm. and he started some HF radio systems, and he needed to scale that and wanted yeah. to scale that. So it's over to 100 different units now um, in these communities. They have antennas on these bamboo poles, and they'll prop them up, and they'll communicate with one another and let each other know if there is trouble in their area which hopefully saves lives. That one was sort of a no-brainer and also a no-brainer from a philanthropic perspective. Um, But then the other gap we kept hearing about was training. So this idea that the Ugandan forces who were pursuing Kony and the LRA, really Kony had changed his MO, uh, the way that he operated, and no longer was sort of in one large mass of people, but rather had broken into these tiny asymmetrical groups that um, were taking quite big advantage, geographic advantage, Mm -hmm. right? Like in terms of we've got triple canopy jungle and it's so remote and they had just really found a way to exploit uh, that operating area. And so um, training for those Ugandan troops who were pursuing him and his leadership uh, was something that kept coming back as a gap. And so we went and talked to the Ugandan government and agreed to fill that gap and help train um, about 300 special operations forces for the Ugandan government. And at the time, you're doing this like nobody knows. Girl, <laughs> you're, nobody knew. Jeez, yeah. um, nobody knew. I mean, I actually, I told my husband Sam at the time, I said, yeah, so our work is sort of trending this direction. And just so you know, I'm probably not going to talk about it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that's best for both of us. I had some uncertainty about, I just... I didn't know where this might go. I was still checking all of the boundaries in terms of what we actually could and couldn't do from a legal perspective. And so I just wanted to make sure we had young children and I just wanted, it just felt like the right thing to kind of keep it that close, but it was very close initially. Yeah. What year was that around? Do you remember? Gosh, that would have been in 2010. Okay. And so for the last nine years, has it, does it spoil the end of the book if we if I ask you what the story is with Coney now? <laughs> no, so um, and no, and, and people publicly know. I mean, Coney, um, we believe Coney is likely still in almost the exact same region that we point to in the book. We had one opportunity, one mission, um, in which we probably thought there was a ninety nine percent chance we were going to get Coney. Yeah, we actually had eyes on him for the first time. People hadn't had eyes on him in forever. Oh my gosh. And uh, just missed him, missed him by a few days. But you know what the the crazy thing was after we hit that horrible mission, it's called Operation Merlin, and it comes in about the middle of the book. We really had to wrestle, right? Because it was like, God, we went all in on that. I mean, we 
technically bet the farm. Yeah. And what does it what does it look like if we lost there? Do, right. do we sort of give up? And what ended up happening was we just learned a lot more about what was meaningful and what was powerful out there. So the fact that Coney did operate in these small, in the LRA, in these small asymmetrical groups gave us this incredible strategic advantage to, instead of cutting the head off the snake, maybe you cut the snake off the head, right? Mm. And Interesting. It, it was interesting. And, and what was great about it was all of the ideas were coming from these local heroes that we were working with on the ground. And so we would literally identify a spot that perhaps someone who had been kidnapped at 13, Coney mainly kidnapped kids, indoctrinated them into the army. And now these kids are adults right. running these different and various groups. So let's say you have Sam Opio, who maybe was kidnapped at 11. Um, just using this as an example. And uh, is now, let's say, 31 operating a large group uh, within the region. Um, And the fact that they don't go home, that they choose to stay. Right, because of the fear, right? Can you imagine David thinking that his dad died because he said he loved his dad the most? Yeah. Do you think he would feel welcome back at home after the entire community saw that? And don't think that Coney's not like completely making sure he understands that too, right? And is fearful of that. Yeah, so you could identify these different individuals. So yeah. someone who might have been kidnapped at six and is now twenty six leading a group, and we would we beca- began to know their names, even though there's triple canopy jungle and difficult um, to know exactly where they are. We know about where they are, and David and others would go back to their villages where they were kidnapped and look wow. for a remaining mom, or an aunt, or a sister. And would actually use his iPhone to record direct messages to these individuals. Not kidding. It is amazing. It's an incredible story of grace and redemption. And he would record these messages. Dwag Pacho, come home, my son. I have never stopped waiting for you. And we had this helicopter with these massive, like, think rock concert type speakers yes. on them and plug in the phone and would just hover over the area that we thought that they might be hiding. And just play the mom's message. 730 came out no. over the period of the mission. Just because their moms told them to come home. I, there, that was one of the the mechanisms that was used. There were also leaflet drops and uh, just domino effects from yeah. Coney just really losing this grip on power, yeah, uh, which we have to keep an eye on because that can always come back too. But um, it was quite, it was quite remarkable. That's extraordinary. Who oh, thought of that? Did you think so of that? So much. No, no, my goodness. No. <laughs> Take the credit if you did because that no. is brilliant. No, you know, just a lot of I, an incredible team that I uh, did a lot of reading and research for yeah. things that had worked in other parts of the world, including in Colombia. Yeah. And, um, and again, the local heroes just had all this, I mean, they had this figured out. And so we just got to empower and really, um, just help press those efforts just a bit. So the last decade or so has been cutting the snake off the head. Yeah. Way easier than looking for one ghost because it was never about the ghost. It almost gives him too much credit, right? Right. Like that was almost so naive. Well, it wasn't almost so naive. It was so naive of us to think like that was the key rather than the reason that we technically got engaged, which was those who were suffering, you know, in his wrath 
And so, yeah, it was a bit of flipping it on its head. Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation with Shannon to tell you about our friends over at Samaritan Ministries. You need a way to pay for your health care. Everyone does. And I'm telling you, friends, health care sharing with Samaritan Ministries not only helps you pay for your health care, but it also connects you to a body of believers who actively care about you, your health journey, and God's work in your life. As a member, I send my money directly to another Samaritan member each month to help them pay for their medical bills. And when they receive the money I send, along with my note of prayer and healing, just like that, this stranger becomes part of my world. I've become a part of theirs. I get to help them in a time of need and pray for them specifically. I may never interact with them again in this life, but for that moment, our paths have crossed, and I really like that. When I have medical bills, my Samaritan family will be there to intentionally reach out and become part of my world. These total strangers are faithful to help me financially as I pay for my medical bills, but also spiritually through prayer and emotionally through notes of personal experience or words of encouragement or scripture verses that have helped them through. Samaritan Ministries bases their direct sharing process on the example of the early church in Acts 2. The church has been around for 2,000 years, and I'm telling you, this method still works. That's a tried and true method, if ever there was one. So find out more about Samaritan Ministries healthcare sharing at samaritanministries.org slash that sounds fun. Again, that's samaritanministries.org slash that sounds fun. Now back to the show. The reason a lot of people know Joseph Coney's name is Invisible Children. Yes. And that film that ended up kind of ruining Invisible Children and and Jason Russell's life for a season. Yes. Did that help you with your work? Did that, can you talk about that? Uh, No, I'm happy to. And I address it briefly um, in the book. I remember when it happened watching and going, I wonder if this is in partnership with what Shannon's doing behind the scenes or if this actually is like, you just stomped on an anthill and I needed you to let me continue to take care of the anthill. Yes. No. Yes. So I think a lot of people were wondering that at the time. Uh, Just to be clear. So in our early work, we were the first ever um, foundation funder of Invisible Children. So just love them. And I sat on their advisory board. In fact, the book is dedicated to um, my operations director in the field, who was one of the co-founders of Invisible Children with Jason Russell. He wasn't around when the yeah. Uh, when the film Coney 2012 was made, he was already working uh, with us yeah. on our work. But we we worked very closely with yeah, them, and I, I have deep, them. deep I respect for um, for Invisible Children. I used to work the, for Bobby Bailey. That's but I did amazing. like a, I helped him with a film oh. a, a decade ago, probably now. But yeah, I so love I love it. those guys too. They're so great. The film was definitely tricky for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, the film had this just supernatural effect almost. Jason's a genius, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he is. He is a creative genius with a heart the size of Texas, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. And he's he's extraordinary. And um, he put together a film that had tremendous power, most viral video of all time mm-hmm. at one point. And it was 30 minutes long almost. Right. And people were and watching the whole thing. There literally were people thing. sitting down to watch yep. it. And it was the most viral video of all time when it came out. And uh, so just grateful, uh, huge gratitude uh, to Jason um, on this side. On the other side, 
of the equation where we were working and where yeah. we were located with the Ugandan military. They had um, they struggled with pieces of the film. They struggled with the idea that the film still showed night commuting mm-hmm. and that they had pushed the LRA out of Uganda like six years prior. Got right? It. They had seen a lot of progress. They were in the process of cutting the snake off the head and had right. made quite a bit of progress and didn't feel as though the film – and the with the film showing the history of the LRA – didn't feel to them like it really showed their progress. So sure. there was some concern there. And um, I also think it was really challenging um, for the country of Uganda because they didn't feel as if they – and I worried about this, by the way. Let me just be very clear and, and very vulnerable. I worried about this with my book too, right? Because the principal subject and geography of my book is Central and East Africa. And – I, in this case, you know, Kony 2012, the principal geography was Uganda, and at least in terms of all the video. And I think they felt like, gosh, why would why would we not see that first? Or why would we not see a product like that first? Why would we not see it at the same time? And why wouldn't there be an effort made in that regard? Right. And so I've struggled with that as well. It's, it's very challenging um, releasing content when you're separated. Yes. Um, by a by continent. continent. Yeah, yeah sure. It really is. Yeah. I think the idea behind their movie of if everybody knew this guy's name, we'll find him is pretty smart. Yeah. Like, I don't hate that idea because now we know Joseph Coney's name. Like, I, I wouldn't have known it if I had never known you. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have known his name. Well, and just to be clear, Jason. Jason is a genius. So Jason knew yeah. about the progress that we were making on yes, the ground. Yes, And he's he knew the work of so many. I mean, their advocacy movement already had made such a massive difference. And he wanted Coney to be that well-known uh-huh. before he was captured. And yes. we all believed he was going to be captured um, in order to show anymore? to the world that this was possible, Yeah, which is an awesome gift yes. to humanity. I don't think so. Okay. I think we know right where he's at and he's he's pretty much I mean he's slowed down on most of what he's doing and um out of age or out of being caught or lots of rumors that he's sick. Um in the footage we saw of him uh, which is probably some of the most recent recent times he's been seen, or maybe the most recent. You know, it was larger and um, just older. I think uh-huh. moving slower. He has played the terrain to his supreme advantage, and he's in a location that's really tricky. And you know, all the credit in the world to the Ugandans because they went up there and tried to get him once in that location. But um, that's really expensive, and it's tricky politically. He's in a He's in a disputed or almost in a disputed region between North and South Sudan. So And so he's losing either way. Maybe there's something really just to see. Now I have like a I'm yeah. a seven with a very strong eight wing. So I have some challenger in me. So to know that an evil man is watching himself lose power kind of feels like okay. Yeah, I have really let it go. I think based on almost exactly what you said, it took me a long time to find peace with that. Laren, who was sort of my significant sort of partner in this effort, hasn't let it go, Um, which is funny because oftentimes I thought my justice wing was a little stronger than his, but um, he will not let it go, I don't think, till he (laughs) feels like it's, it's really a closed chapter. Yeah, But I think we learned that the LRA 
was not just completely and entirely about Coney. Like I think if Coney mm. dies tomorrow, I think the LRA, those elements are still going to exist, the ones that are sure. still out there, right? And so, it, again, in terms of just giving him too much credit, but um, I expect we won't. We won't probably make another effort that direction as wow. the international community. Yeah. But we'll see. Compare Coney to like Bin Laden or Hitler yeah. or Stalin. Is he, will history remember him as one of that, the evil Mount Rushmore? Will history remember him like that? I would be surprised if they do. And again, it gets back to this idea in some ways. Um, obviously, there's lots of distinctions between those that you named yes, and Coney. No. It's uh, the lawyer in you versus the like, Annie's asking questions. No, I love it. I love it. Um, but one of the distinctions is, again, that he's preying on the poorest of the poor. He's in a remote region. Um, it's different. It's yeah. different, right? Um, the, the hunt for bin Laden you know, had so much to do, I think, with, um, it, it hit so close to home sure. with, with what yeah. happened. And we put a face on that particular perpetrator mm-hmm. and, um, and that became so relevant. It's really challenging to get like the U.S. or even the United Nations, like, interested in this conflict. And so just to be clear, you know, because there's- Because it's control, contained geographically. yeah. And because, okay, let's be real honest, yeah. because the victims don't matter. Yeah. There's no natural reason, like there's no oil that like is sort of in our interest or sort of driving that, even though it's there is in that region. It's not costing the world financially. It's not it's costing us financially, and it's not a threat to our national security. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it doesn't matter. And that's like... The entire premise of this book is like, let's reject that. Yes. Because you know what? It doesn't ma- it doesn't matter to me if the government says it doesn't matter because it matters to me. It matters to you. Yeah. It matters to us. And yeah. so let's see what we can do um, given that and given that it still does matter yeah. and not have to wait, spend time just waiting on these international organizations to um, or these governments to intervene on behalf of our fellow humanity when something like this is happening. God knows if something was happening in my neighborhood and the police didn't show up. So I would sure hope that anybody would show up, you know, and it wouldn't matter if it wasn't following a certain decorum of, oh no, that's really meant for the UN or, oh no, that's really meant for this government entity. And so kudos to Invisible Children for turning the world's attention and the nation's attention on it, because Mm -hmm. that is what ultimately got the U.S. government much more deeply involved. They had done some funding already through the State Department, some pretty significant funding, but weren't actively involved. Um, But I'll be real surprised if if they gear up and sort of go at this again, especially because he's just not wreaking the havoc. The year before we got engaged in this joint mission with all of these unlikely partners, the LRA killed 776 people. Last year, the LRA killed eight. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So, How different. Yeah. And every one of those eight, that's too many. Eight's too many. Agreed. But. Yeah. But Coney's, there's right now. That's we, very interesting. Along. They're doing something... That change in stat feels like they just are happy existing as an army versus defeating. I think so. And their army's so gone. The majority of their command and control is gone. I mean, I told you, you know, 730 came out uh, during the time of the mission. Um, And then there were three international criminal court indictees. Coney was the first ever. And then two others that remained. Both of those were removed from the battlefield during the mission. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, the momentum I think is gone. That doesn't mean on any given day that they can't just sort of robustly come back, but all evidence to the contrary so far. There's been an increase in some kidnapping um, numbers. Usually they're kidnapped for a couple of days to be porters and then oh. released. Um, but no, we've been, um, we continue to keep an eye on it. Is this still your day to day? Yeah, I, we're doing a lot of other work in the region now too. Um, there's another um, couple of, of groups in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo in particular in an area that's now having a massive Ebola outbreak that you've probably oh, wow. heard about. Yeah. In addition to just a crazy mass atrocity that's just happening in their region. So we're looking at some of that and um, just sort of figuring out ways to fill gaps, mm-hmm. to continue to play this role of being really nimble, being able to activate quickly, listening to those on the ground who really actually do have the solutions and looking for gaps where we might be able to play a role. Yeah. Okay, so one of our friends hears this today. They finished reading To Stop a Warlord, and he or she wants to do something. What's the next go to law school? <laughs> yeah, or just, I mean, or just do something, right? Okay. Central and East Africa isn't everyone's, I don't think, isn't everyone's calling. Um, I know, though, for sure that each of us have something or more than one thing inside of us that does make our heart skip a beat, that just makes our heart beat a bit faster, but also makes us angry um, when when it's out of whack. And I would just say, listen. I would say, volunteer. Go be in community with people. um, Do it in your neighborhood. Find that, yes, in your neighborhood, in your house. I mean, Mm. and, um, and then, gosh... If you're supposed to be in Central and East Africa doing it, please come join us right. and uh, reach out to me because yeah. that would be great. Okay. Yeah. And they can find, I mean, everything through Bridgeway. Yeah, there's lots of contact information yeah. in the How You Can Help section back. Ah, book, brilliant. So. How You Can yeah, Help section. Girl. See, that's what I'm here for. That's what I needed. Y'all are going to love this book. I'm talking to y'all like y'all are sitting here. Y'all are going to love this book. It has an outline and it has like a timetable of how everything happened. This is such an interesting read. And then How You Can Help. Perfect. Yeah, because I just can't imagine someone hearing this and and going, oh, the only thing I can do is move there or the only thing I can do is go back to law school now, though maybe right. some people will and That's partner right. with IJM and um, do whatever. But I just think, man, there's this is an activating conversation, yeah. um, I would hope. That's oh, what I think. The, what you wrote and what we talk about is you want people to activate on it. Yeah, and just there's no fence around a human heart and that manifests in different ways, right? But we should have no... There shouldn't be any boundaries to how we engage mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. We started there, right? Yeah. When you started and you you quoted the scripture and we talked about the poor. And we're all the poor. I mean, we there's no such thing as the other. Yeah. Um, so And you're a wife and a mom and yes. you what does the rest of your life look like? Sometimes crazy. So we decided while we were launching the book for some reason that we would um, move into the this. We have a little guest house on our property and um, and, and have you live our in Texas? main house redone. Yes, okay. I live in Texas, and um, so kind of been building a house and. And releasing a book? And Room Mom this year. (laughs) Girl, I can't even. Oh, it's a good thing that I, yeah, I won't keep listening. I mean, the other Room Moms have got to be like, she 
uh, works to defeat an army in Africa and also brought the snacks for Valentine's Day. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was texting on right before we started. Oh, I was like, hysterical. oh, gosh, we got to have her. And I have to, if you're room mom for seventh graders, you got to be for the eighth grade. So my oldest is 13. My youngest is in third grade. Okay. You know what's been extraordinary, though, is my oldest. I've let him read the book. Oh, really? So that was challenging, right? Because they were young when I started this work. Right. And it's like, God, why is mom leaving? Why is mom traveling mm. so far away? Mm-hmm. Connor said, you know, mom, are you going back to see the zebras in Africa? Which, oh my gosh, would just hurt my heart so much because why would I leave him for all right. this time to go look at the zebras? Right. You're like, I can go to the zoo in oh, Texas. Oh my yeah. gosh, kid, I promise <laughs> I love you so much more than that. Um, and so... Yeah, just um, started journaling to both of them because I couldn't talk to them about all the horrors. And oh um, wow! And Connor is just—I I probably won't give them that journal till they're older because I talk about stuff that was too—that was too sacred for the book mm-hmm. and the journals. There was stuff I couldn't put in the book. Some, some of the ways that some of these children were brutally murdered, and the suffering of their families. That's just not meant for public consumption. That's deeply private and personal. Yeah. Really isn't shouldn't even be meant for mine. So um there's pieces of that that are in the journals to the boys that uh they'll have one day, but they'll have to be much older. But um they've gotten to meet David, who's the oh, central wow. yeah. star through the book. Yeah. And David's getting married in Uganda in December. So we're gonna the boys are oh gonna come. Oh, I know we're go. all gonna go. It's gonna be so fun. That's so fun. And and see David's wedding. And, yeah. Um, Do you ever worry about your safety? You not really. No. I mean, there were times, right? The the most dangerous thing we did was uh, flying on those air platforms in that region and landing on these dirt, you know, strips. There were several planes that flipped sort of over on their heads, these little caravans during the time we were out there. Yeah. And that was by far the most dangerous thing we did. Um, I mean, when I slept out there, I slept in a the Ugandan military base surrounded oh, wow. by hundreds of military yes, soldiers, you know, yes. the only woman for miles. Um, okay, not miles, but for, for uh, as far for as the eye could time. see. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly felt like it. Um, but never really was concerned um, from a, my personal safety perspective. And obviously, I had the prerogative and the perspectives of the fact that. I mean, let's be real, right? I, I come home at night to San Antonio. I enter through a gate, and then I put an alarm on to keep my kids safe. These mothers, uh, during the height of this, when basically you probably had a 50-50 chance and any given night that your kid was going to be kidnapped and abducted into this army, would find ways to hide their children under leaves at night. And um, so just no comparison, right? Um do you the, know the work the of Bethany Haley Williams? Yes. yes. She's amazing. She's yes. amazing. Oh. And her like doing art therapy for some yes. of these children now over there. Because when you say that, I think the trauma in the children, even just from having to be hidden yes. every night, had to be. She's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, she's one of my my biggest heroes. She's in Congo now doing some uh, continuing her work. And um, she and I often talk about how... Because during the time that so many of these individuals came out, I'm like, oh, Bethany, do you have any of the kids that Uh came out? Uh Um, But we often talk about how a lot of the ones that she's worked with um, preceded even our intervention in this work. Bethany's been at this for a long time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, someone, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, texted me last night and said, Shannon Sedgwick Davis is one of my absolute literal heroes on this planet. 
you would never call yourself that, I would guess, <laughs> as you shake your head no. Tell me who are the heroes to you. David is a hero to me. So mm -hmm. you'll get to read about his story in the book. Uh, David's a hero, right? So basically feels like he had to say who he loved the most and then watches his dad die. All right. Still waiting every day, every time he hears that someone's coming in from the gallery, still hoping it's one of his brothers. You can't understand. I can't understand. We can't yeah. even try to pretend like we're going to understand how that must feel or, right. or what he must be experiencing. And then to choose to sort of triple down on humanity mm. and to act with this extraordinary grace. And so what he'll do is he'll go when we when someone's identified that comes out of the bush, he'll say, oh, where's your family from? He'll figure it out. He'll drive out there in this truck and just blaze a trail because a lot of times there's no roads no road, where he's yeah. going. And try to find remaining family members and say, your son's still alive. Oftentimes he's beaten or things because they've grieved their son. They thought their son yeah. was dead. Yeah. And so they buried their son in their mind. Yes. And uh, he'll get in his car and go sleep like a, you know, a mile away and drive back the next morning and say, your son's alive. Yeah. Like, can I bring him home? And, will organize an event usually where he can bring uh, ultimately bring once they're convinced that their son is actually, actually alive, alive yeah 20 30 years later bring that individual home they're celebrated and then they set up a incredible reconciliation ceremony mm. where um, before he would hug his mom or a remaining family member they do a ceremony first where they sit around and it's called Matu put and they um, they drink the bitter root together. So there's this bitter root that they drink. And they drink it, all of them. Because it's like, gosh, the sins of one of us in some ways are the sins of all of us, right? right? right. And we've all been affected by it, mm -hmm. even if they're mm -hmm. not the same, mm -hmm. right? And we've deeply been affected by community. And we're all broken. And so we're choosing to all ingest this bitter root right. and accept it together right. as a community. And then they place an egg right in the center. The egg on the outside, you know, can be dirty and is exposed to the elements. And then the LRA uh, returnee would step on the egg then. And then you have the yolk, which is all clean and pure. all new. And the community at that point sets forward to never talk about it again. And that that is that they are resolved and moving forward. Oh, so just the, the magnitude of what I've learned about grace about justice. Oh my gosh, I was trained. I went to law school, three years of training, and we've got justice wrong here. Um, our justice is so built on this idea of this retributive justice system, right? You pay for your crimes. The justice that I've had modeled for me over there is this restorative justice. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a kind that restores all of us because again, mm -hmm. we are all united. Whether we like it or not, we yeah. are all one this intrinsic ball of individuals. And then last one, sorry, I, I went so long on that. No, um, I love it. Last one that is a hero to me, um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yes. I've gotten to know him and he's a, um, oh, he's such a joy. And that was such a divine gift uh, to me in this season that um, I had an opportunity to get to know him and become mm -hmm. friends with him. And um, I talk about in the book several times, just going to him with some of this because we were really, um, we really debated really for a long time about whether or not we should do some of this. And he was a real sounding board for me. But the thing he taught me the most, I was in the depths of despair, sort of raised 
in an evangelical home and a, and a happy home and sort of with these rosy colored glasses and uh, then went on to IJM and saw what we saw in sort of the human trafficking and sex trafficking space. And then doing this work, um, I just had gotten really sad. The joy was running really thin in my life. Um, and it felt like every time that we would lose um, in a small way, it just cut really deep. And so one time I was on the advisory board of this group called the Elders that Archbishop Tutu chaired. And we were in Darfur mm-hmm. in Sudan in one of the camps there. And we were in a just witnessing horrific circumstances. Um, there were several people we were probably in the presence of that weren't going to make it much longer. And it was devastating and it was hot and it was just, it was miserable. And I looked over at Arch and I call him Arch. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sweet. And I look over at him and he starts singing and he starts dancing. And I'm like, what is happening here? And everyone else, all of the people that we were there to see started singing and dancing girl I had to get like this white yeah <laughs> you're like the only white singing girl and dancing. Yeah. yeah yeah um so I asked him about it when we left on the drive back uh to where we were staying and he said he said sister he said I was desperately sad inside right I was crying inside because that's what I couldn't get he said but we have to practice joy mm. And this idea that joy could be a discipline was something I was missing. And joy is different than happiness. There's there's a distinction there. But this idea that I actually could practice joy in the midst of like the most sorrow you can contemplate was transformative for my life and for my spiritual life. And so that's... uh, He's a hero to me because I think he gave me the gift of recognizing that joy was a discipline and realizing that in, in living into that, the remaining years of this mission, I think was the only thing that really sustained me at times. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is really something. Thank you for making time to do this oh, today. Thanks for having me. You were really so kind. Fun. So this feels like a little bit of a tight left turn for us to make, but I think it's important too, to that joy conversation leads to this. The last question we always ask mm. because the show's called that sounds fun mm. in your life. What do you do for fun? I caddy for my nine-year-old's golf tournament. Really? I really do. And you love it. I ordered like a caddy vest even. <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so into it. How often? I think about, he probably plays two to three tournaments a month. I think about nothing when I'm out there other yeah. than him. The golf courses are so beautiful because you're out in nature. Yeah. Can't have your phone. So I'm like measuring yardage and having to use like this side of my brain, which I never use. Yeah. And um, that is what I do for fun. Um, there's great, and I take long walks with my oldest son. Um, yeah. My oldest son is a deep soul, so we—that's how we spend time together. But um, 
No, we're going to a mommy son golf camp at Pinehurst yeah. this summer. But I don't golf, so this is going to be. <laughs> like, I'm just here to caddy. I'm just here fine? to caddy. But I, don't, I don't know if that's going to We'll see where that goes. I might have a uh, different answer if you'd ask me after that. But yeah, yeah that's, that's what I brilliant. do for fun. Well, thank you for doing this. You are, I don't use this lightly, you are a hero. So I am grateful to know you and excited for people to get to read To Stop a Warlord. So thank you. Thank you. Oh my gracious, y'all. I just love her. She's just so brilliant and fun to be around. And just, I, I yeah, I just could not think more highly of Shannon. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Make sure you follow her on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places. Tell her thanks for being on the show and grab a copy of To Stop a Warlord. It is absolutely fascinating. I don't know that there's another book like it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So again, it's called To Stop a Warlord. Hey, if you need anything else from me, I'm embarrassingly easy to find Annie F. Downs. F as in fight, because that is what Shannon does. She fights for peace and for justice. And so F is for fight on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the places you know how to find me. Hey, just a reminder that Sunday we have a special show dropping on Sunday. Do we ever drop shows on Sunday? No, we do not. But we do this week because it is celebrating our 200th episode celebrating my birthday and some of your favorite stories we did a little update on. And so I think you're really going to like theirs. There's a couple of surprises coming for you on Sunday. And so I want to make sure that you know, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that. And when you wake up Sunday morning, getting ready for church or whatever, and you go, wait, why is there a That Sounds Fun episode today? I warned you. I'm telling you today. It's coming on Sunday, and it is going to be so, so fun. And don't worry. That didn't change out the Monday show. We still have a Monday show coming as well with my friend Hillary Scott from Lady Annabellum. It is about time that we had her on here. And so nothing felt more fun for my birthday than a quick, fun update show on Sunday and a long, sweet conversation with one of my best friends on a Monday. So you guys go out and have a great holiday weekend. Hug your family and friends. Thank God for our freedom. And we will see you back here on Sunday with the fun 200th. It's not technically 200. We've already passed it, but you get it. You get it. The 200th episode and see you Monday with Hillary. Y'all have a great weekend. <laughs>